Hey there, podcast listeners. Uh, before we start today's lesson, I just wanted to invite you all to the 2014 Midwinter Retreat hosted by the Saints at Berean Bible Church in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin on the weekend of February 14th, 15th, and 16th. The messages during this year's retreat will cover the first 12 chapters of the book of Matthew. I'm going to be teaching on Saturday and Sunday mornings. Uh, there's a, a whole slate of other speakers, including Mike Teary, Larry Gabbard, Dan Gross, Joe Wanda, Alan McKean, James Lathrop, and Stephen Kappas. I'd love to meet some of you in person if you're able to come to the retreat. So if you need uh, more information about schedules or lodging arrangements, just send me an email at richard at richardchurch.com. Thanks and enjoy today's lesson. Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, that's an important passage regarding the commission that we've been given as uh, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 14 says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. Verse 18 says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. And verse 21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And uh, this this passage of scripture you know a lot of times people people like to form kind of these these tight theological packages right so you have uh, for instance Calvinism is a good example you know Calvinism when you when you look at it just as far as its consistency and you know it's a it's a very it's a very nice neat package right um, and there's other other things like that but uh, what often happens is, you know, we can we can form these theological packages and we come to a passage like this and it kind of blows things all apart, right? Uh, because, because, for instance, if you take Calvinism, for instance, one of the uh, points of Calvinism, you know, generally people recognize five points of Calvinism, is uh, this idea of limited atonement, 
right? So uh, since since God chose who he was going to save in, in the Calvinistic view, uh, since God chose who he was going to save, Christ didn't have to die for everybody. Uh, he just had to die for that group of elect, right? And yet uh, the passage here we're looking at begins by saying that the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And, and the idea there is that Christ, Christ had to become identified with man. He had to die. He died for all because all were dead. Well, who were the all that were dead? It was, it was everybody, not just the elect, right? Um, Christ died for all. And you see that over and over again in Scripture. And, and in fact, you know, uh, people who hold to that Calvinistic view, sometimes they'll identify themselves as, uh, there would be some people who would say, well, I'm not a five-point Calvinist, I'm a four-point Calvinist. And uh, in that case, almost always, the point that they reject is that one of limited atonement, because over and over again you see in Scripture that Christ died for all. right? And, and then verse 15 says, And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. He died for all those that were dead, but out of that group there were going to be some who were going to believe and receive life, and they were going to live. And, and the idea here is that they should live not, not to themselves. This is a passage about how believers ought to live. It's not a, this isn't a passage here really about uh, how to be saved, but it's a passage about how, once you're saved, how should you live? There's some ways that you should live. And, and he says it's the love of Christ that constrains us. Now, you know, that's, that's completely different from what you see in most of the religious world, even the, the, the Christian religious world. Because uh, the Christian world tries to put all kinds of things in there to constrain people. And, and so often it just winds up being legalism. Uh, it winds up being the same kind of thing that the Apostle Paul wrestled with. It seems like everywhere he went, he would go and teach people about the grace of God. And then some people would come in afterwards. The Judaizers would come in and they would start trying to put people under the law. And here he doesn't say the law of God constrains us. You know, the law of God constrained people. Right? If you lived un- under the Old Testament, uh, that law of God certainly constrained you. Um, and there were strict penalties for disobedience to the law. But here he says the love of Christ constrains us. See, that's how grace works. Uh, the, the law, and the difference between that, by the way, is that the law, all the law can ever do is just constrain your outward action. That's all it can do. Okay. Um, it can it can put a, a limitation there, a regulation there. Uh, it can't change the heart. There's a there's a little poem that says, "Do this and live." The law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. You know, and that just kind of captures captures the idea that the love of Christ constrains us. It's a different kind of constraint than the law because. It's, it's something that works differently. It changes us on the inside and it, it then allows us to live in a certain way that's not going to be unto ourselves, but unto him which died for, for them, for us, and rose again. And so on the basis of that, verse 16 says, Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Now that's, a, that's a challenging statement there. Because, I mean, think about when you, when you know someone or when you meet someone, mo- most of the way we get to know somebody is after the flesh, isn't it? I mean, think about when you meet somebody. Uh, you meet somebody and you talk to them about 
what they do or where they live or, you know, these, all, all these things having to do with the flesh. But what Paul's doing here is he, he's really, in, in this whole passage, he's calling us to, to view the people around us and the world around us in a different way. And not to just focus on the flesh. If, if you know, we're not supposed to focus on our own flesh, we're certainly not supposed to focus on the flesh of others. He says, henceforth, no, we no man after the flesh. You know, if it's important to me when I meet somebody to know, uh, you know, know those, just those things regarding the flesh, what they do to make a living, that kind of thing, shouldn't it be important to know what their spiritual state is? And that's challenging to me because I think about, you know, I mean, there's, there's people that I know that are acquaintances of mine, and I've, I've just never, never thought to have a spiritual discussion with them. And I ought to, right? We ought to know people... After, after the spirit, we ought to know what their spiritual state is, not just know them after the flesh. He says, wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. And see, there's, a, there's another important thing here. You know, he certainly is, is contrasting in some of these verses, you know, being dead and alive, being, which is being unsaved and being saved. Um, but there's also some dispensational things here. He says, he says, look, we don't even know Christ after the flesh. Even if we've known him after the flesh, there are conceivably, there are people here at Corinth that may have even encountered Christ physically in the flesh. But you see, there are a lot of things that Christ did and said in the flesh that were for, for a previous dispensation. Then later he gave different instruction to the Apostle Paul. And, and so here he says, even if you knew Christ after the flesh... Um, Though we have known Christ after the flesh, he says, yet now henceforth know we him no more. See, there's something new going on. And so verse 17 says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so that that individual believer who has been made new has also been made part of something new. This body of Christ in this new dispensation of grace and everything's become new. Everything's different now. And so we need to, we need to view things differently. And where, where I really want to concentrate here, verses from 18 on, where he begins to talk about this reconciliation. Verse 18 says, All things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, this is important because here it says there's something that's been given to us. Verse 19 says, To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. There's been something that's been committed to us. There's a a commission. You know, so much of the, the church is trying to operate under the Great Commission. And what they wind up doing is that, you know, that passage of Scripture that they refer to as the Great Commission, they wind up really, really uh, kind of watering it down to, to such a degree that it just means, you know, they, they mix everything together. And uh, anyway, when you take all the details about the Great Commission, it becomes clear that we do not operate under the Great Commission today. All right. But uh, this is our commission. This is, this is a commission. And what's been committed to us is the word of reconciliation. Uh, uh, unfortunately, this, 
this ministry of reconciliation is very greatly misunderstood. In fact, even often among people who understand some things about rightly dividing the scripture. You know, a lot of people today are, are uh, doing a lot of communicating over the Internet. And there's some advantages and disadvantages to, to that. Uh, I mean, it's amazing how people who are separated by thousands of miles of, of geography, uh, you, can, you can communicate instantaneously with them over the Internet. Uh, it's, you know, it's very easy. People that, that I never would have had communication with 20 years ago, uh, I, can, I can very easily talk to them, find out what's going on in their part of the world, and, and uh, it's, just, it's just a very easy thing. And so in, in that way, people have been more connected. Um, some, when it comes to spiritual things, some of the, the negative things is that there, there are so many, there's so many weird doctrines out there, you know. And there's, there are a lot of people today that rather than, rather than understanding the role of the local church in building up saints, they're, they're going out on the Internet looking. It becomes like, like Paul described the people at Athens, that they spend all their time uh, just trying to hear some new thing, right? And, and I think sometimes people get kind of, they get kind of bored with, with sound doctrine, and so we've got to find something else that's new and exciting, you know? It's always something to be, be careful about. You know, I always get kind of, kind of worried when somebody, the very first time they hear about right division, they just, they, they just say, oh yeah, that's right, and they grab a hold of it. And Because a lot of times, the next new thing that person hears about, then they're off doing that, you know? I'd rather have somebody who says, hey, this goes against everything I've been taught in my life. Maybe I should take some time and consider it and see what the, the you know, see what the strong points and the weak points are. And, you know, I'd rather have somebody like that because when they come to see it, they're going to be strong in it. But you have people that are just, just tossed to and fro, you know. And, and one of these things today has to do with this ministry of reconciliation. Okay. And, and there have been some, some things that are true mixed in with some other things. And it, and it winds up leading people into some, some weird areas and even distorting the gospel itself. Okay. And so there, there's a, a view here of the reconciliation. He says here that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. Now, the reason that God is not imputing the world's trespasses unto them is because they were imputed to Christ, right? And so, so the trespasses of the world were imputed to Christ. However, uh, there are people who will take that and they will say, for instance, that, um, that, that forgiveness, they'll say that everybody is already forgiven, saved and unsaved alike, are already forgiven. That forgiveness isn't even an issue because Christ paid for those sins. And in a way, it can be sort of a, a tight theological package, you know, kind of like Calvinism is. Um, because what, what they're doing is they're taking this metaphor that's often used in Scripture of a payment being made. Right. And, and certainly that kind of wording is used. Uh, the word redemption itself means to to make a payment or it has a, the idea of, of purchasing something. Uh, but you often have this this idea of a payment being made. And they're saying if Christ made the payments, then my my sin must not be an issue at all. 
And so they wind up saying, they'll say that, that uh, one of the catchphrases that's used is they'll say, it's not a sin issue, it's a son issue. Or uh, they'll say that uh, uh, it's not someone's sin that sends them to hell, it's their unbelief. Now, there's some truth in that, right? There's some truth in that, not, not because sin isn't an issue, right? The reason somebody's lost in the first place is because they're a sinner. The wages of sin is death. That's why somebody's lost in the first place. That's why they need to be saved. And belief is the means by which you're saved. So the only thing certainly that is preventing somebody from having eternal life is not their sin. Their sin is not an issue in the sense that their sin has been paid for, in the sense that uh, that sin has been dealt with and all you have to do is believe the gospel to be saved. But that doesn't mean that that person who hasn't believed the gospel is already forgiven. I'll, I'll use a metaphor and you've got to be careful about these metaphors uh, the, you know this isn't a this isn't a biblical metaphor and again sometimes you can take those things too far but it, if you have a guy that that uh, is drowning and somebody throws him a lifeline and he doesn't grab the lifeline why is he drowning is he drowning because you know whatever the circumstances led to him drowning or is he drowning because he didn't grab the lifeline in a sense both could be true right because salvation is available to him and he could grab it, but, but ultimately the cause of why he's drowning is, yeah, he's, he's going under the water. And this reconciliation here, you know, there's, there's different reconciliations that are talked about um, and even different reconciliations that are accomplished by the cross. Here he says that, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Now, the, just just in understanding the term reconciliation, the, the need for reconciliation comes about because there's some kind of enmity. There's some kind of a, a breakdown in the relationship between the two parties that requires reconciliation. Okay, In, in the case of the world, um, the world, almost right from the very beginning, uh, rebelled against God. Adam sinned against God and his his descendants were all born in a state of sin. They were born in rebellion. They, it says even if they didn't sin after the similitude of, of Adam's transgression, uh, they, they still died, right? Um, and that's, that's kind of like, I mean, you don't, you, you don't have to be, this kind of enmity doesn't always have to be an individual person-to-person enmity. I mean, you, you think about, uh, when nations go to war, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean one individual in this nation hates one individual in that nation, but they're enemies because of the group that they're a part of, right? And, and the world and just the natural state of man is to be at enmity with God because of that, that state of sin. And, and God's, when man sinned, I mean, God's, God's, uh, justice, his holiness, required that he be at enmity with man. Uh, it's just that that's who God is. That's, you know, he's holy and just and righteous. And the reconciliation that's talked about here, when Jesus Christ paid for the sins of the world, now God could say to man in general, to the whole world, say, look, the, the thing that offended my justice, it's not in the way anymore. It doesn't stand in the way anymore. Right? It's taken out of the way. It's been paid for. It's been dealt with. And so now you can be reconciled.
to me. So it says here that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. But then notice at the the end of verse 20, or if we just read all of verse 20, it says, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. And and you see, reconciliation is not a one-way thing. You have two parties that are at enmity with one another. God has reconciled the world unto himself, and yet, is the world reconciled? If, if they were all automatically reconciled, Paul wouldn't have to say, be reconciled to God. Right? God, for his part, I mean, you think about it. If, uh, you know, two people have, have been friends with one another and, and somebody offends the other one and, and now they're fighting, okay? And one of, those, one of those individuals decides, hey, this is stupid. I don't want to fight anymore. Let's, let's uh, be friends again. That reconciliation isn't really complete until the other guy says, okay, let's, <laughs> let's be friends again. Right. He can he can reconcile. He can reconcile the other one to himself in the sense that he's whatever. I'll overlook the offense or, you know, he can do that. But the other person has to be reconciled to him for that relationship to resume. And and that's the idea here. And that's why the, the, the Lord has has reconciled the world unto himself. But. Paul stands there as the ambassador and he says all of us as believers are ambassadors. And he says, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. And you see, that's the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, the, the ministry of reconciliation is to, to go out to people and say that God doesn't, God isn't, isn't holding your sin against you in the sense that it's been paid for by Christ. You can, you can uh, be reconciled to God through what Christ accomplished. Okay, it's not to go out and say your sin isn't an issue in any sense. And it's not to to go out and say you don't even need to be forgiven. That's already taken taken care of. Um, It's you do need to be forgiven and the forgiveness is available and it's available through Christ. and, And you just need to believe the gospel. So where this position winds up is, you know, in, in saying that because because uh God has reconciled the world unto himself and because God's not imputing their trespasses unto them, um, you know, they conclude that everybody is already forgiven, whether they're saved or unsaved, whether they believe or don't believe. What that means is that if you follow that that thinking to its conclusion, that the vast majority of forgiven people are going to end up where? In the lake of fire, right? Because they don't believe that all those people are saved. They're somehow forgiven but not saved. And these people who all their sins have been forgiven, according to this view, are going to wind up in the lake of fire, uh, which doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? I asked one of these teachers about that. Go, go to Revelation chapter 20, because he, he was making the point that um, your sins are, are not an issue at, even at the great white throne. You know, but you read here about the great white throne because he says the only issue is whether you believe the gospel or not, whether you've, whether you've uh, accepted the, the work of Christ. But notice what the, the judgment here is at the great white throne. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. 
And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man, according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, what you see there is that there are two issues at that judgment. Okay? And you see, he says that the the dead are standing there before the throne. And it says, and the books were opened, verse 12, and the books were opened and another book was opened. Okay, so as you picture this, you have the books were opened doesn't tell you how many books, but the books and another book. Right. And and that distinction is made for a reason. Uh, that other book, it says, is the book of life. Now, what it says is that the dead were judged out of those things which were written, not in the book of life, first of all, but in the books according to their works. So what are those books? It's the, the record of their works. Okay? Here at the, at the great white throne, the Lord has the record of their works, and they're judged by those works. It says it again in verse 13, the end of the verse, they were judged every man according to their works. Then verse 15, so after the, the evidence, you understand that this... What's going on here at this uh, judgment, the evidence that's presented here is not for God's benefit. It's for man's benefit, right? That that individual that's standing there before the throne is going to understand why what's about to happen to him is happening. And so he's judged out of the, the books by his works. And then verse 15, whosoever was not found written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. Now, ultimately, what determines where they spend eternity is not what's written in the books. It's what's written or not written in the book of life. And so they're judged out of the books. That shows their just condemnation. And then he shows them the book of life. That record, I mean, there's the record of the opportunity that they had to, since Christ died for all, that they could live. Right. There's the opportunity that they had to avail themselves of the finished work of Christ and reveal and receive eternal life. And he turns to the page where their name should be. I don't know if they're in alphabetical order or what, but uh, he turns the name where they should be and he shows them the book and their name isn't there. Again, it's not for the benefit of God. He knows them that are his, but he shows them your name isn't there. And all those whose names are, are, are not written in the book are cast into the lake of fire. Now, this great white throne that's described here, there are no saved people there at the great white throne. Uh, there's, there's nobody there at the great white throne whose name is going to be found written in the book. Uh, but they're shown, they're, they, have, they're, they have the evidence for why they're going to be there in the lake of fire. So to say that, that those sins are never an issue... The, 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 the things that are written in the books are there to show them why they deserve to go there. What's not written in the other book is what shows them they didn't, they didn't take advantage of the opportunity they had. 
Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.